So in earlier centuries, undertakers actually used to reuse burial plots or crypts after a passage of time. And charnel houses would actually store the disinterred remains, obviously because there was nowhere else to put you. And according to the legends, some of these corpses had broken fingers, torn lips and horrified expressions. So people jumped to conclusions and assumed the dead had been buried alive. Or had they? Is premature burial legitimately something to be afraid of? Or is it just an urban legend that got out of control? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Why, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Cedric. We are now into Freaky February, considering this episode is going out on February the 1st. I hope everybody enjoyed our Creatures of the Night theme for January. This month we're going to be looking at things that are just generally a bit weird, a bit peculiar and all downright strange, really. And this week I thought we'd kick off the proceedings with a premature burial. And I think part of the the reason why is because there is a bit of a fear of it that does reach that quite primal part in all of us. And Sigmund Freud talked about the fear of premature burial in his 1919 essay, The Uncanny. And he's basically trying to do a survey of all those things that provoke a somewhat uncanny feeling in people. And I'm not going to go into the reasons why he thought it was something that people feared, because yes, you've guessed it, it was to do with your mother. But he did have a point, though, that it is something that a lot of people, not consciously necessarily, but unconsciously go a bit at. And Edgar Allan Poe explored the horrors of premature burial in his 1844 story, The Premature Burial. If you've ever seen The Fall of the House of Usher with Vincent Price, and if you haven't, you should, they basically combined the story, The Fall of the House of Usher, with The Premature Burial, and I think came up with something a little bit more horrendous. And Stephen King actually skirts the edges of the fear with his short story Autopsy Room 4 in which a man wakes up to find himself conscious but paralysed on the autopsy table. And you wouldn't think you'd be able to get an entire short story out of that but you really can. The fear of premature burial is actually referred to as taphophobia or fear of graves. And it does at first glance appear that the fears were well founded because in 1905 Burial reformer William Tebb claimed that he'd actually collected accounts of 219 cases of near-live burial, 149 cases of actual live burial, 10 cases of live dissection and 2 cases of awakening during embalming. But this is the question, was premature burial really that common or was it just an urban legend that got out of control? Now we do have to remember that prior to modern medical technology, doctors really did rely on quite basic methods to confirm the presence of life. Now we do have to remember that prior to modern medical technology, doctors would rely on fairly basic methods to confirm the presence of life. And they would watch for breathing, they would listen for a heartbeat, they would feel for your pulse, and there's even a sniff test to smell for decomposition. So you do sort of think they didn't really have a lot of ways of checking that you were actually still on the mortal coil. And to be fair, the invention of the stethoscope in 1816 did give doctors a slightly more accurate way to monitor the heartbeat. But you do think, though, with these things in mind, there are health conditions where you might go, oh, this person's died and they actually haven't. 
Now, Richard Jolts notes the dual purpose of laying out the corpse, which is something that isn't really done as commonly now because we tend to hand our dead over to other people to take care of them. But during this particular process, you would lay the corpse out somewhere at home and it gave the family time to make preparations for the funeral. They could prepare the body, but it also meant that they could watch for signs of life. And even in the early 20th century, there are new stories that describe people actually regaining consciousness either during the funeral or at the wake. So if you're going to come back to life, you'd probably rather regain consciousness finding that you're actually in your family home. Probably a bit weird if you woke up in a coffin, but still, it's a, it'd be a more familiar environment to wake up rather than waking up and thinking, why is that pathologist standing over me with a scalpel, if you know what I mean. And we do have to bear in mind that in earlier centuries, undertakers would regularly reuse burial plots or even crypts once a period of time had passed. And this is just basically for matters of space. And what they would do is they would obviously disinter people who'd already been buried and they would store their remains in charnel houses. And this is what you basically end up with in some parts of Europe where you've got ossuaries and so on. They're generally a collection of bones that have been moved from their previous burial site. If there's actually a really interesting one. If you do the tour, it's in Bride's Church on Fleet Street and you can see their charnel house. But this is the thing. According to the legends around premature burial, once the corpses were disinterred, people found that they had broken fingers, they might have torn lips and they wore really horrified expressions. Now, there are reasons why that might be the case medically, but people would jump to conclusions and assume that the dead had been buried alive. Now, I have found plenty of stories of corpses being revived when their coffins are dropped, and some people regain consciousness, as I say, during the process of embalming or even dissection, which must be genuinely terrifying. But Franz Hartmann wrote a pamphlet in 1896 called Buried Alive, an examination into the occult causes of apparent death, trance and catalepsy, and he actually suggested that the phenomenon partially explained vampires. And he cited cases in which exhumed bodies bore bloody lips, which were most likely from bite marks. And Paul Barber actually refutes this and basically said there is no evidence that starving people end up chewing on themselves to assuage their hunger. But again, there are health conditions which can actually cause these kind of physical symptoms that to an onlooker might look like you'd actually just dug up a vampire when you hadn't. Jürgen Hartogs also tells a story about a wealthy lady who died sometime around 1849 in New York. And in the story, her husband decrees that she'll be buried in all of her finery. But more importantly, there's not going to be an autopsy. So the undertaker decides to take her jewellery off before he buries her. But while he's taking her diamond ring off, he actually manages to tear the skin. And the pain was actually enough to rouse the woman. And obviously the undertaker naturally fled. And the woman regained consciousness and went home. And according to this particular story, she went on to have children, so the experience clearly didn't leave her too worse for wear. Now, I have actually heard versions of this story before. I've heard it on a ghost story tour in the City of London, in Edinburgh and in York. And every time I hear it, the tour guide insists it's absolutely true. Now, obviously, the, the do vary. I mean, the one that I heard in the City of London, it was about a woman who'd been buried and it was actually, I think she was in a crypt. Somebody had gone back after she'd already been buried and was trying to take her rings off and her fingers had swollen. So he went to cut one off and then that was what woke her up and obviously she went home. And the one in Edinburgh is very similar. It's an idea of body snatchers have come to have a look in the grave. And obviously the idea is that technically you can take the body because it doesn't belong to anyone, but you can't take 
the jewellery or the grave goods because they belong to the actual person. So that's what's theft, not taking the body. But they basically, again, try to cut her rings off and this woman then wakes up and, and obviously realises what's going on. And these t- these men then have to try and explain why they were basically leaning over someone's coffin in a graveyard. But it's, it's amazing how many times you hear this version of the story. And I can't help thinking it's probably not that common and it's not that it's happening in all these places all over the country it's more likely whoever's written the the tour has gone oh that would be a good story we've got a graveyard let's chuck it in there but there are versions of this story throughout europe actually between the 14th and the 19th centuries and you also get them in the us as well and it's it's fascinating how the the main plot is always the same even though the details vary and it's always the fact that the grave robber or the undertaker either dies of fright or flees in fright and the woman basically has to get home on her own. In some cases, the husband or servants actually think she's a ghost and bar the woman from her own home. One of these stories, and they're known as the Lady in the Ring as a story type, one of those stories relates to a Marjorie McCall in Lurgan Island and in 1705, so obviously this is a much earlier example, she dies of a fever and they have quite a swift burial afterwards to make sure that the infection doesn't spread. And a grave robber breaks into her grave to steal her expensive ring. Now, again, his efforts to remove it actually revive Marjorie and she goes home after the robber flees. Now, in this story, according to the legend, her husband, John, actually drops dead of shock when he answers the door and she's standing there. Now, this is the interesting thing. Marjorie McCall really did live in Logan, but there's no evidence to actually prove that the story genuinely happened. And a local stonemason created his own memorial in the 1860s. And it says Marjorie McCall lived once, buried twice. And he added it at the headstone of a John McCall in the town cemetery. But there's really no way of knowing if it's the same John McCall that died of fright. Now, Jacqueline Simpson tells a tale of premature burial from Sussex. And in this one, a tombstone in the Rye churchyard features a woman sat upright in a coffin. And according to this legend, the lady in question was a narcoleptic. And one of her episodes lasted so long that doctors actually pronounced her dead. Obviously, this would be before all the medical technology that would say, no, she's still alive, we'll leave her. Now, her family laid the coffin in a room at the old Flushing Inn and the rising warmth from the kitchen below her room actually roused her. Obviously, everyone got a bit of a shock when she went downstairs and she was basically complaining about being cold, which I think is fair enough. But the thing with this, though, is obviously the story's all based on what's on a tombstone. And Simpson actually notes that the carving more likely relates to the resurrection of the dead on Judgment Day. But this was actually misinterpreted by later generations as a warning about the risk of premature burial. So, as I say, this idea of, you know, someone sitting up in a coffin is supposed to be about Judgment Day, but then it's become about premature burial. We can't talk about premature burial without talking about the precautions that people took. And the British medical community completely ridiculed Franz Hartmann's Buried Alive pamphlet of 1896. And they consider these comments to be ludicrous at best, and quite frankly, it's hardly surprising, because Hartman even asserted that even putrefaction didn't guarantee that a person was dead. Uh, spoiler alert, it kind of does. But despite that, the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial formed in 1896, or so the same year that his pamphlet came out. And Germany actually introduced what was called a waiting mortuary to monitor corpses for signs of life. And they basically tied strings between corpses and bells that would then ring if the corpse moved. 
So one of the more famous inventions following these fears was the cemetery bell. So this was just a bell that was mounted beside your grave and the string would go down through the grave into the coffin. So if you woke up having been buried, you'd then ring the bell and someone could come and dig you out. Some people actually believe that the saying saved by the bell and dead ringer relate to these specific bells. But sadly, David Wilton actually debunked these theories, which is a shame because they do make quite a nice story. Now, saved by the bell is actually boxing slang and dead ringer originally comes from horse racing. And the ringer point refers to a horse that could pass for another horse to then run a race in its stead. And the dead bit was added in the context of something being like dead on or spot on. So obviously, if you're a dead ringer for someone else, you're like an absolute double of them. So that's where it came from, not a person ringing the bell to say they weren't dead. There was also another type of safety coffin, which actually meant that you could pull a cord and this one would wave a flag above your grave. Clearly, someone would have to be actually watching to see that, whereas at least the bell would probably be a bit more useful. But I can't help wondering how long you would actually have between you regaining consciousness and them digging you out. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that works. And I really hope nobody did this in a windy cemetery. There was also a version for crypts where hand wheels would be fitted inside the crypt so that anybody who was buried alive could basically open the door and climb back out. So that's a much easier solution because it means that you're basically freeing yourself rather than having to wait for other people. Now, other people took it one step further and they left instructions in their wills that doctors should actually take steps after their death to avoid premature burial. And they went along the lines of, well, make sure I'm dead first and then everything's fine. So, for example, they might ask doctors to sever the arteries in their neck. So if they weren't dead before that, they certainly would be after. Elsewhere, physicians might press red-hot pokers against the feet. This one really makes my skin crawl because they might push needles under the nails. I mean, ow, that's just, oh, that actually makes me feel icky now. Or they might just burn the skin. And it was basically anything to determine that the corpse was, in fact, a corpse. Which it all just sounds very excessive but I suppose if you'd, you'd rather that somebody burning your foot with a red hot poker than being buried alive and I actually wrote a story inspired by grave bells and the link is in the blog post for this episode and it's also in the show notes as well just in case you wonder what kind of weird stuff inspires me but there we go I think you've probably already twigged because you know you're listening to this but anyway thankfully premature burial is quite unlikely nowadays because of much better medical technology so it's much easier to pronounce death even if definitions of death have actually shifted slightly but that said authorities actually discovered a live occupant in a body bag in Massachusetts in 2005 and there's again there's a link to that on my blog and in 2014, a private hospital in Thessaloniki in Greece actually declared a woman dead and buried her, except children playing near the cemetery actually heard her screams. And then they went off and thankfully alerted the police. And it, I don't know if it's just, this is just a, a regional problem, but a second woman, also in Thessaloniki in Greece, suffered a similar fate in 2015. And this time her cancer medicine was actually what caused the declaration of death. And unfortunately, she actually died of heart failure inside her coffin. So as I say, it's, un, it's, it's difficult to tell how many of these stories are actually genuine and how many of them are just urban legends. As I'd said with the tombstone option... The, the, the lived once buried twice, there's no way of knowing if that's genuinely the right grave because obviously there's no evidence for the story actually taking place. You would think something like that would have been recorded in the news. There's the tombstone in the Rye churchyard where the woman's sitting up in her coffin and it's actually about Judgment Day not coming back to life. So 
a lot of these fears kind of have been basically from things being misinterpreted rather than something that genuinely happens. Obviously, there is really no way of knowing how many people actually have been buried alive. I dare say there's probably actually been more than would like to think. But as far as the safety precautions go, I've never really come across any stories where they actually saved someone's life. So I do think that some of the safety precautions might have been a good way to sell coffins to people, but I don't necessarily know how helpful they ended up being. But anyway, we'll never really know. So I hope you enjoyed this episode at the start of Freaky February. Next week, we're going to have a look at Valentine's Day folklore. Now, I do realise it's coming out basically a little bit early, but it's just so that you've got it ahead of Valentine's Day. So obviously the episode will go live on the 8th of February. And obviously Valentine's Day is the following Friday. So we're going to have a look at things to do with the heart, basically, because why not? We will also be looking at cemetery superstition, so we'll be building on what we've been looking at today with premature burial. And we'll also be looking at Spring Heel Jack, who quite a lot of people have been saying, can we have an episode on Spring Heel Jack? And I think he's marvellous. So yes, we can have an episode on that. Can't guarantee I can keep that one to 15 minutes though. And then we're going to be looking at the folklore and legends around Sinitas at the end of the month. So that's February. If you've got any requests for future episodes, please do let me know. You can grab me on any of the social media channels. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget there is also the exclusive extended bonus episode that you get on a monthly basis if you support the podcast at the $4 a month or higher tier on Patreon. And that has just gone out yesterday. So, But you get you should get access to the previous ones if you become a supporter like from now. I think that's how it works. We'll find out. Anyway, I've waffled on long enough now. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I hope to see you next week for the whole shenanigans around the heart and Valentine's Day. But otherwise, have an absolutely lovely week and I will see you soon. Cheerio.